Hi, I'm Bert Broadhead, and welcome back to another episode of Building Our Future, the podcast where we meet the people shaping the built environment. Today, I'm lucky enough to spend time with a real estate-focused anthropologist who will be explaining to me her role in helping property developers adapt their products to the changing needs of the end user. We'll talk about the reasons behind emerging trends such as co-living and co-working and why they're coming to the fore, and also touch upon the idea of social value that's inherent in all good real estate. Remember, if you're listening and need transcripts of the podcast, head over to our website, buildingourfuture.net, and simply follow the links. My guest today is Gemma John, an anthropologist helping to influence urban planning and development. After 10 years in academic research, Gemma spent five years working for engineering, planning and architecture firms, including Acom and Foster and Partners, before establishing her own consultancy business, Human City. Human City helps property developers who are aware of the impact of existing and emerging technology to create commercially successful alternative housing. Gemma's work ranges from advising on new building concepts through to mobile apps. Besides advising major developers on emerging trends in co-working and co-living areas, Gemma is currently designing a research project focusing on the moral economy of housing. Gemma, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me here. You've got a very interesting uh, background in the context of the built environment. What originally drew you into the world of property from... uh, from the world of academia. So I was trained as an anthropologist, which is someone who studies and understands cultural shifts and societal changes, principally focusing on Britain and what was going on in Britain um, up to up to now and, and obviously into the future. And as we all know, new technologies have had a profound impact on the way in which we learn, work, live. And so it seemed apt for me to move into an industry where I can help clients to understand the impact of new technologies and design and help them design more effective spaces and services. As the work that I do, um, we help leading property developers connect with their customers in order to design places in which communities thrive. And a lot of our clients are really designing for these kinds of kinds of communities that they would and and really have a kind of an ethical outlook they they really have this sense of social responsibility that is uh, designing a a product or a building is not just about making money it's also about actually uh, making people's lives better and 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 creating places rather than just spaces places where communities thrive is a key part of that so we look at place the relationship between space and place obviously um, and help them design places um, for communities um, and turn, build, therefore turn buildings into to kind of destinations. But also we help them with authenticity. A lot of the clients we have uh, also want to develop an authentic relationship with their customers. They actually want to know about their customer. They want to know about the whole journey. They want to know what they were doing that day, what they were doing that week, what they were doing that month, who they are, so that actually when they walk through the front door of a co-living space or another building, that they've already anticipated, the property developer or the, uh, the clients already know what the needs of that individual are. Um, so help them build that authentic relationship with their customers. And a third thing, the real area of interest at the moment, and you'll probably know, is, is again, evidence-based decision-making, particularly for planners and local authorities, right. to you know create a... If it just create a justification around a new building typology or you know a, a reconfiguration of an existing space in order to um, create the argument through evidence around social need and social value that that this um, these new new types of buildings need to be there. So, so we touched on it already, but one one of your main focuses is alternative housing. 
particularly kind of co co housing, co living. Now, the UK is not alone in facing a crisis of of quality and affordable housing stock to meet the needs of an increasingly growing, particularly urban population. You're a proponent of co living as one of the potential solutions to this. What what is it about that that kind of typology which uh, which you like? So I've been engaging with a lot of individuals looking for accommodation. So this particular kind of accommodation, but specifically low rent housing options and co living to some extent allows that that to be on the market a little bit more than perhaps it is currently. Um, So it provides people I speak to, potential tenants, potential customers, with a a low rent option, a housing option in some cases. But it also provides them with more than that. So a lot of them complain to me that they are fed up with having a lack of um, decision-making power, you know, in in the current, um, in the private rental sector. So they they tend to um, be in shared houses, where landlords have uh, dominate still um, and um, maybe might sell a property without much notice, might use um, certain rooms as sto- for storage facilities. Generally, the state of the property is in disrepair. And again, you can't choose who, you want, who you're going to live with. Quite often, these shared spaces are, are um, people end up with, with um, randoms, um, random others. So co-living spaces give them more autonomy, there's more choice in co-living spaces. Quite often it's for larger numbers of people. So even though they're living together, they have more choices to who they spend their time with. And you're quite, quite often fine in larger co-living spaces. Um, you know, 300 people upwards, smaller groups kind of emerge where you've got small, tight-knit groups of people. Um, within a bigger... Within bigger, a bigger bigger number, yeah. And is there an expectation that as, as the sector becomes more uh, institutionalised, the service will improve? Part of what co-living selling is convenient. So, you know, you're not, you're just not paying for a space, you're paying for the service, yeah. right? Um, and so, of course, you know, that places um, pressure on the property developer or, or an op- uh, operator to actually deliver a certain level of service for the money they're getting from the, from the customers. So there's that aspect of things. But I, I hope that, that the rent, rental, you know, the, 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 rent, the rental come down as well so that they become genuinely affordable. Um, but there might be... That might be actually can increase diversity there in terms of actually the way in which you provide low-rent low co-living accommodation is by not offering the same kind of service, by actually providing more of a self-service offer, right. which some property developers are beginning to explore. But then they, they, of course, then have less control over maybe profit margins, who's in the space, you know, how it's run, which is, is a risk for them as well. So at the moment, service and convenience is part of the package. And then there is a kind of then um, a management you know kind of a management cooperates with yeah. with, with tenants in order to deliver a service that, that kind of works for tenants it should be a slightly more collaborative approach yeah. do you think that this co-living idea is, is something that people actively want or it's just a preferable alternative to the current kind of one-off uh, mom and pop uh, private rented sector yeah i think there is genuine a need and but i think there are t- two interesting groups of people uh, two groups of people emerging, and, and it's interesting how property developers actually or operators satisfy both is going to be uh, as yet to be seen. And I think you know the collective, for example, is is, is having a good go at that. Um, so there's the group of people that um, like love the convenience of co-living. So as I said, that the kind of what they're paying for is the convenience and the, the boutique hotel offer end of of co-living. And these tend to be um, transitional communities, people coming into maybe big cities like London, I don't know anyone, um, want to be in a ready-made community, um, want to engage with people, they want to make uh, new business contacts, uh, they want to make new friends, and it's a starting point, you know. And then there's a second group of people um, where they 
genuinely believe in co-living because they think it's a sustainable alternative or way of living in cities, right? So they think that it's part, in a sense, part of the sharing economy, you know, however you define the sharing economy. But, you know, it's off the back of that, and they think actually sharing the cost of living, sharing the economic, environmental, and social cost of living in cities yeah. is a much more sustainable way of living. Um, and they are really invested in making the co-living model work from the ground up. And they're the ones that probably want more participation and engagement in actually how the, the space gets run. Her expectations are not so high. They're not so interested in the boutique hotel offer. They're not wanting a particularly serviced environment. They actually want to have maybe more of a self-service offer. One of the things we've been speaking about in recent weeks on the show is that the kind of transforming power of, of brand and current real estate. So it's going beyond just retail now yeah. to offices and particularly co-living so you, you will you will i think have these well you've already got it in, in co-working with with we work but it's you know a global community and that there's no reason why that couldn't absolutely transpose itself yeah. and, and it's absolutely it's these, these these communities work on two both levels you know and i do think that um as co-living um the co-living offer develops um in the market and there are more more property developers involved in this in this um, engagement in um this space you'll see that people will then, your probably customers will subscribe to a particular lifestyle. So they'll identify with a particular style of co-living, right, which is, is, is about that company positioning itself in the market and about it differentiating itself from other, other co-living providers. But I imagine that then people will begin, begin to identify with a particular brand of co-living. Um, and you get branded space all over the world. You get branded housing in places like South Korea. Mm. You know, quite often you get Nike, you know, putting its name on a tower block, you know, with, with uh, flats within it. So branded spaces are not a new thing. We've got co- branded... Co- yeah, we've got... Exactly. We've got co- branded co-working spaces. So I imagine that people will begin to align with particular ways of collective living. And within collective living, how, how do your, some of your developers think about how you can balance... The need for community and, and to share space with other people versus the, the need to actually have some um, some quiet time. At the moment, there's a there's a there's private units available to people, and of course, all this amazing shared space. And that kind of there's a sharp then divide between what's very private and what you occupy with maybe your you know beloved, and then how you then suddenly are thrown in with with other people in these shared living rooms and shared kitchens and shared you know libraries. And I think there probably needs to be much more variation in the buildings um, to create more opportunities for, for smaller groups to gather. As I said, a lot of yep. people are engaged online and they're organising themselves. So if people aren't present in the physical space, it doesn't mean they're not gathering together. Yeah. It just means they're actually using online uh, social media to kind of group up and gather and communicate and actually maybe organise to meet in another space. So the more opportunity, well, more opportunity there is for people to meet in smaller spaces, um, maybe within their rooms. I, th- I think there needs to be more of a kind of a a gradation between the private space and the public space in terms of like a shared living space that's semi-private in their room somehow or opening up corridors as an opportunity to kind of duck out or have what's equivalent to the doorstop. I mean, if you're really yeah, going to yeah, okay. create the equivalent yeah. of a neighbourhood, which is kind of what we're thinking about here, you know, turn these corridors genuinely into what was otherwise the neighbourhood where you had people, you know, sitting and chatting on doorstops and uh, doorsteps rather and, and, and watching other people. Internal streets. How important do you think it is for residents to have an active voice in, in the management. And sorry, that's probably a pretty straightforward answer, but, but to, to what extent, yeah, there, there will come a point where people are like, you know what, just get on and manage the thing. Um, just, just ask me on the important 
point. So where, where's, uh, where's the balance? Well, I've been involved in projects at both ends of the spectrum, really. So one where a property developer didn't want to have any involvement whatsoever in the management or operation of the space. He wanted to kind of give up control totally to the tenants. Um, but uh, developers running these spaces, if they want to let up control, yes, they have to, they have to provide a, a means that, that allow, that to enable um, tenants to actually engage and, and come up with a shared idea of what this space is going to be about and how it's going to be run and who, who you know, should live there. You know, for example, should tenants have a say on who moves in? You know, that's a kind of big question, which is if, if, if the community is based on a kind of a sh- shared values or... or um, shared outlook you know should they have some say in, as to who lives there or not you know these are all this is all really kind of gray territory and really difficult to to kind of um you know uh make a decision on particularly if a property developer also wants to make money it can't turn people so away so have you heard of a business called campus so this, this was a, a u.s co-living concept which went bust in 2015 for the exact same reason you've just uh, you've just outlined so they, they were Operating business, so taking taking leases on blocks and then subletting them effectively as as uh, co living oh, yeah. units, no, I've heard, yeah. uh, and they gave their tenants the right to veto new tenants, which led to massive voids and uh, and ultimately um, absolutely then yeah. boss. Which is why there needs to be a you know a, yeah. a collaborative agreement rather than it being one or the other. I think probably yeah. yeah. And and my, my final kind of question on, on co living is is. Uh, design and amenities there is a lot of focus at the moment about the bigger the better in terms of services you're providing so when we think very high end you're thinking swimming pools and all sorts of amenity how important is amenity versus service is there kind of a growing recognition that actually service doesn't necessarily always mean just additional facilities I think it's about experience, actually. I think that's also what we forget. Yeah. So it's easy to confuse service and experience, and I think it's really that's it, it's the experience in the space that people are um, are looking for. And that goes back to this idea of authenticity, and you know, how do you create an authentic relationship with your your customer, and how do you anticipate what that experience should be for them? And of course, it might be might be different for different people. But how do you how do you um, you know manage those differences? When I, certainly when I used to think about co-living it was mainly as a as a young adults thing so as the next next step from uh, from university perhaps or um people in transition um transitional jobs just arrived in the city etc but there actually seems to be um large number of of um yeah older people who are who are using co-living so u.s developer ollie reports uh, over 20 percent of their inquiries are from over 50s uh, and they believe that they're attracted by uh, the lack of responsibility, uh, people just looking for um, a pied a terre in, in town, long distance commuters, and people in kind of life transition. So, I think the first question is how easy is it to get people in different generations to live together? What I find, so what I find kind of the elephant room in the kind of discussion around intergenerationality is that, you know, where the, fam- where the families. So, I think there's kind of a bit of a drop off where. People, when they start having thinking about having families, actually there's there's some literature around this that, that they want to they end up kind of resorting to the kind of status quo, which is having their own buying or owning or yep. renting their own house again, um, because they want their own private space or you know what is that about? I think it'd be interesting to, to learn a little bit more about why they make that transition back to independent living um, and whether actually there's a there's a gap that needs to be kind of filled, and then they come back again you know later in life um, you know where there's when again potentially as a result of a transition a loss of a you know a loved one or um because uh, 
people around them have, have, have disappeared and they want to kind of find a find a community yeah. again well they need physical support or they kind of benefit from from being uh, spending time with others uh, and again it goes back to personal development i know people who are in their 90s and they love spending time with young people because for them it's it's learning you know and they get to learn what's what's been going on for the last you know, I don't know how, how many years but i think it's a real i, I kind of I have, I have spent time with or worked for property developers who've tried to double in that family co-living kind of space and they've decided the numbers just don't stack up in the end. Um, so it's difficult to do develop family accommodation on a kind of co-living basis. Yeah, that, that seems to be the, the missing piece of the puzzle, isn't it? As you say, you've got, you've got the, the young, the old, and it's the, it's the young families or, or families full stop. And yet actually that's where you need kind of practical support. I mean, right. I'd jump at the chance if someone offered a kind of co-living kind of family set up. So, well, it's funny you should mention it because uh, no, uh, I, actually, I think I think it was through one of your one of your articles that I, I came across this. So, there's an architect, Matthias Hulvich. He has designed a uh, 600 unit tower called Skyler, which uh, it's be... like a city in the sky. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've heard other people kind of address this. There's a guy actually local to me. He's trying to develop. They think about this for. London. Really? Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it looks very cool. I'm, I'm not sure it's entirely practical, but his point is really just to demonstrate that you can, you can have, have a supersized, yeah. cross-generational yeah. cooperative building. And I think what was nice about his is he, he didn't assume one size fits all. So there's all sorts of different kinds of size units um, in that tower. You know, they were kind of arranged differently. And I think quite often we get a, a the question about flexibility, how flexible are these, these units and, 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 and in terms of how they're designed and how could they be changed over, over time? So a lot of people are interested in, the tenants I speak to, the, the customers, um, interested in co-living, also want a space to live for life, which means that, uh, yeah, I know, it comes <laughs> so why would they? But actually, genuinely, if they're interested in building, you know, these are the people who want really subscribing to this idea of sustainable living yeah. and want to find a group of people they can live, grow, and live with and grow old with. But, you know, their, li- their life situation might change. They might be single when they, you know, have this idea. They might meet someone. They might, you know, have family, etc. And they want spaces to change with them. They want the kind of flexible uh, accommodation. They want to be able to be in a unit that potentially can flex and bend. And also, and, and, and that will uh, be, can be adapted as their needs change. Which is ambitious, but um, you know, te- technology and where we're at now, less ten years ago, is ultimately the enabler for what seems like total pie in the sky to to become a step closer. Absolutely, yeah. I think um, apps are going to be playing a big role in how they, all these spaces are being developed and designed. And yeah, you know, apps provide people with the opportunity to to um, meet new people, for there to be some kind of. Um, matching on the basis of skills and professional um, you know, uh, expertise in order to gen, you know, create, to enter into new enterprise arrangements yeah. and start businesses together, but also match basing based on physical needs. So you might, you know, might match with someone who actually needs their shopping collected every week. You know, that's somewhere you're passing by. And also, potentially, if you're a hands-off developer, it provides you with the opportunity to say, look, guys, you, know, you sort yourselves out. You, you know, when, a, when a room comes up, you advertise it, and, and it's... Uh, it's they're, they're available for people to, to put themselves forward. So, so let, let's move away from, uh, from co-living for a second. So I um, saw you were doing some work examining the boundaries between libraries and the workplace. Can you give us a quick, uh, a quick overview of what, what this entailed? 
I've done a lot of research on the transformation of public libraries. It just was something that interested me a few years ago. I started this research back in 2014, but it's actually become incredibly relevant to other areas in which I've worked. Um, I've also um, have had a career in workplace consultancy. So, you know, I could immediately see the overlaps between what's going on in libraries and what's going on in workplace consultancy, and also, you know, the residential sector, and the kind of common thread is new technologies and how that's having an impact on you know, people's behaviours and therefore the kind of spaces they need. Um, and the fact that actually new technology allows people to work anywhere, anytime, different spaces and places to suit their need. But libraries, therefore, are becoming potential workplaces for people, for freelancers, entrepreneurs, people setting up new businesses, and, and are therefore addressing this real need for a kind of um, temporary office in city centres. Like, for example, Helsinki. I met some guy who runs his business out of Helsinki Central Library. It's kind of completely amazing. Oh, so that's interesting. So you're, the way you were looking at it is that um, you know, offices have kind of infiltrated libraries, where I was actually going from the other, other way, whereas... And our, it goes the other way too. Yeah. Does, okay. It does go the other way around. So it, where there are places with libraries, like Arup, you yeah. know, has an amazing library um, attached to li- uh, you know, uh, Arup University, but other uh, law firms have their own libraries. Um, libraries then are becoming a different kind of setting in the, in the context of the workplace. So they are now not only just a space for borrowing books, speaking to reference librarians about a particular issue, um, but also potential new settings to do focused work, collaborative work. So these libraries are becoming, again, being redesigned to reflect that kind of changing need. So we're, we're in a period of time at the moment where the uh, open plan office concept is, is getting a real kicking. That's when I ran away from workplace consultancy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> can't resolve that one. Sorry, I can't remember when, but, but I, I read a book not so long ago by a guy called Cal Newport called Deep Work, and it's, um, it's fairly common sense, really, that your, your, your greatest productivity comes in, in moments of total non-distraction. Mm. So, and as soon as you start adding in distractions, be it an email or someone asking a question, then actually your, your focus and thus your productivity can, can drop off quite dramatically. Hence, if you, most of us look back to our student days, what have you, the amount you probably managed to cram in 24 hours before an exam is probably up there with your, your moments of kind of maximum productivity. Well, the fact that you actually could work with the, you know, Nirvana blazing, blaring into your, you know, into your, through your headphones into your ears. Oh, no, I, I just went into monk-like, uh, put myself in a library. <laughs> I needed a quiet place. But that's, that's why I thought your library work might be quite interesting. So the idea of having just... Quiet space. Yeah, literally yeah. kind of quiet pods or whatever it is in an office where you can just zone in and get stuff done. Yeah, I mean, there's a potential role for, for libraries there, but not every office has a library. So, I mean, you're, or there's an argument for maybe including a library. I was working for an, the Architects' Practice with Foster Partners, and it has its own library, and it, it is actually a, a quiet space and a social space. So it's yeah. there opened up in the evenings for, um, you know, for, for events and gatherings, and you're surrounded by a rich collection of, of books, which is rather amazing to, to, to be in. But is there not... There's a bit of a, a contradiction in, in some ways between the... I don't want to say the death of open plan, but the, the, the changing views on open plan uh, and the rise of co-working, which quite often tends to be not wholly open plan, but certainly kind of geared towards towards that concept. Mm. So how, how do you kind of explain one booming in popularity whilst also getting kind of more questioned than ever before? And I think officers are very aware of this. So I was um, speaking to Stillcase recently um, and they are aware that they're clients are are um, 
seeing the influence of co-working and particularly on, on people's expectations of, of what the workplace or particularly headquarters should provide. So, you know, an office is a destination for work is maybe an outdated concept. So, you know, you have to create the argument, you know, the real the experience in that space that then means that people want to go go to work. And so quite often co-working spaces become a kind of model for how offices now are designed. And certainly co- um, Steelcase has really taken that on board and and also the fact that people quite often can work from home now. Yeah. So, you know, this, this kind of domestication of the office space where you've got lounges and comfortable sofas and, you know, a wide array of seating options um, is one way of thinking about that open plan, you know, you know the, kind of the future of the office and the impact of, of, of co-working and alternative spaces on, um, on the office in terms of actually the office has to to change and adapt and keep on top of these changes. So now moving away from the workplace onto, uh, onto retail. So a, a few weeks ago we had uh, Laura Marrero on and she was talking about the, the power of brand and retail stores becoming more important actually as, as forms of media and influence and, and less about just a place of transaction. How do you see our, our shopping habits changing and, and, what, and what people want from retail changing? I could refer to libraries on this one. Um, libraries, I mean, libraries have um, always been modelled on the retail space, actually. Libraries have seen books as merchandise. So, again, how do you make that merchandise attractive to your customer? You know, you create a kind of beautiful patron path where actually there's, there's no clutter as people enter the, the library so that actually they can see all the merchandise beautifully displayed uh, on, the, uh, on the shelves. They are beautifully lit. So, you can, and, you know, how do you encourage people to wander through the library to the back of the space so they buy more things? You know, essentially pick up yeah. more books. And it's kind of modeling itself on the old version of the retail space but I think they kind of again there's a learning to be there's some learning between those two is that as libraries are, as a, as are changing they're actually realizing that people don't go to libraries to borrow books anymore they're, they're accessing information online at a distance so you know what's the argument again for visiting a physical space yeah same with retail people are um, buying objects online probably do the research online potentially before they buy anything in the physical space but probably buy it online anyway because it's convenient um, so I guess retail is more ex- becoming more experiential. Actually, you know, it, it's a space in which people can learn what to do with these objects, how to use them. I know um, some of the DIYs, um, uh, organizing B&Q, for example, assuming that lots of products are bought online is providing lots of uh, opportunities for people to learn and understand how to do DIY actually in the B&Q spaces. Yeah. So that actually maybe people are encouraged to buy more products and, and realize and, and kind of learn from each other in a way. Is, is the future then mixed use so we've got offices wanting to put more social space and 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 eating options and leisure options we've got retail wanting more office space and residential residential let's say is everything just going to end up a, a kind of funny mixed use potentially i think um the more services are combined in a single space the more convenience you can provide your customer the more footfall you're going to have um, as I said, spaces themselves are not necessarily destinations in their own right. So what's the argument for people actually going for, to one place rather than another? So the more um, you can provide an opportunity for customers to do several things in one space and therefore, as a result, you know, draw people into something that they might not otherwise have engaged engage with, I think that's, that's, that's potentially a way to go. And where do you, where do you see your, your work focusing on in the, uh, the coming future? Any kind of trends which really interest you I, I mean i'm really interested in what view city are doing um in terms of innovation 
at the moment, I don't know if you come across a few cities, but it's, 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 yeah. it's cataloguing new buildings in London. It's um, kind of it's, 3D model yeah, of 3D, London, effectively. Yeah, exactly. And it's almost kind of a, a live description of what's going on in a projected buildings. So buildings that actually got planning permission are, are going to be put up in the near future and buildings that have been changed and remodeled. And, and I think that's really interesting for understanding and having a live description of what's going on in the city currently. That's all about the kind of the built environment. I'd really like to see um, kind of a social element to that, which is how is all that infrastructure actually affecting how people use, engage with each other and use the city? So having an understanding of shifting demographics, shifting movement across the space, how people, you know, relocate or what, what are consequently, you know, what are the, what's the history, what's the social history of, of London? How can it be told in conjunction with the built? Does anthropology have a big part to play in how we interpret some of this newfound big data? Anthropology and the kind of methods we use, which is more ethnographic, which is um, spending time with people, you know, understanding what it is to be them, you know, yep. treading in their footsteps, understanding what their worldview is, helps ask better questions in order to gather the data you need in the first place. So it kind of goes both ways. There must be a massive danger of data bias in the world of big data. You can effectively dig for whatever you want. I think data is great at a large. It's great at a large scale. It gives you a kind of a broad picture of what's going on in a city. I think you know the more data we have, maybe in a sense you kind of get data saturation. Right. Um, so it's, it's very difficult maybe to unpack it, and perhaps that's that's where you know the role of ethnography and kind of more local engagement kind of allows you to unpack the data that you've got. Data is great at telling you the what, like what's going on. You know, we use um, what's called sick data, which is more ethnographic kind of um, material, um, local stories, local histories, yep. to provide the, uh, an answer to the why, you know. Why are people doing what they do? So we're, we're on to my last two questions, one, one of which I think you've, you've, slightly, uh, you've slightly already answered, but we'll, oh, right. we'll, <laughs> we'll come on to it in a second. So the first is um, your favourite building. Um, so it's Notre Dame Basilica in Montreal. I just think it's the most inspirational space I'm not, I'm not religious, but I think, you know, for people, for anyone, you go into that space, it's vibrantly blue. Okay. Um, yeah, so it's a bit like Notre Dame in Paris, but it's just, it's blue, blue. and bigger. Um, and have you spent time in Canada, a lot of time in Canada? Yeah, for conferences and, and uh, various, uh, various other events. Um, but I really was kind of awestruck. I know it's probably not the answer you're expecting, but I just think it's just I mean, such it's, a stunning, it's, stunning it's, building. Uh, yeah, we get lots of, lots of varied answers. <laughs> all in there. That's the idea. Um, and so my final question was, uh, yeah, the, the, the innovation which kind of uh, interested you most from a, a real estate perspective. Would you, would you stick with uh, View City as, as that answer? Or? I think that's where I'd like to, I'd like to see what, what happens there. Yeah, and I'd like to see how you'd layer on a social, as I said, the kind of local stories and local histories. What kind of data sets would you look at in order to gain that kind of insight? First of all, there's an awful lot of data already available. So lots of material, lots of people already looking at right. um, what's going on in cities, just pulling some of that together, you know, even just lo- the history of local markets um, and how high streets have changed over time and the impacts of you new know, buildings and... And this is uh, we're now going going slightly slightly back in the interview, but I just, I just want to finish with a question. Do you do you find it interesting that we're going we're going kind of backwards quite a lot in our heritage in terms of when it comes to designs? So if you think about retail, you know, there, there's kind of uh, antipathy towards homogeneity and the boring uh, cardboard cutout high street, and, and people kind of immediately revert back to their roots. Like, what's the what was the original? heritage of a town and how can we re-encapsulate that in independent retail and what have you 
I think it goes back to placemaking, the difference between space and place. So I recently did a um, presentation for Lendlease, and I had to kind of talk about, you know, from an anthropological perspective, how one might think about place. And I talked about three things. I talked about experience, and that was really experience of the city and, the, and, and how people experience it. And that's very much about um, these kind of historical references. And if you look at the River Fleet in London, it brings back memories. And people quite often make strategic decisions to locate in older parts of the city. Maybe that's just particularly British, you know, older parts of the city because it carries that history rather yeah. than newer parts where there may be kind of, you know, there may be safer parts to live in, but they prefer the older bits because they tell stories. Uh, Gemma, thank you very much for joining. It's been a pleasure having you on. <laughs> thank you very uh, much for and having fi- me. Final question is, how can people get in touch if they want to hear um, hear more uh, or uh, yeah, find out what you're doing? So you can get in touch with me on Gemma at humancity.co.uk. And yeah, I'd love to hear from anyone who's interested in what we've just talked about. And follow Gemma on LinkedIn. She's got plenty of uh, good content being published there. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. We're in the era of big data capture, which may soon enable us to have the kind of insights that we probably even now still don't realise are possible. None of that is going to happen, however, without the right knowledge, experience and understanding to interpret the data in a meaningful manner. For this, we don't just need data scientists. There surely needs to be a human element to this. And this is where the arts and social sciences may have a key role to play in anchoring data extrapolation in actual human experience. Co-living may well prove interesting in this regard. I'm still split as to whether I think the main thrust of current interest in co-living is driven by desire or necessity, but I really do think there are some interesting ideas to explore further, particularly in intergenerational cooperative co-living. I also really like Gemma's idea about weaving social data into the network of big data property platforms as they emerge to help shape the built environment in a way that it's needed most without having to democratise the process by seeking mass engagement for every single decision that needs to be made. As ever, do get in touch. I'm on email via the website, which is buildingourfuture.net, or you can find me on Twitter, where my handle is at building underscore R. Thank you for listening, and please do join me again soon.